If we really care about helping people get their lives back from a religion that's designed to shackle it, fill it to the point where there's no room for anything else, and ultimately consume it, we can't approach debate in a way that turns their brains into rocky ground. We all want to be right. So rather than slamming them over the head with the ways that they're wrong, how about just listening to what they have to say and then providing your point counterpoint to what they say. And I do think that what evangelical faith does to people is cause for righteous anger, but not with them. You had your say, they had theirs. Say thank you and walk away. Thank them for hearing you. Thank them for being concerned about you. These things have a disarming power that I don't think some people realize when they're in the mode of wanting to win an argument. It's not about winning. It's about communication. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And And it's it's time to get Unbound. But of course the Bible is true, right? Of course it is. I mean, the Bible says that it's true. The Bible says that it's the all-authoritative Word of God. The Bible says that God is real, so of course God must be real too, right? Right. Right, right. You see, that's the kind of circular logic that we're going to be dealing with tonight and discussing how we get around a lot of this stuff when we talk with evangelicals, and really anyone of any faith persuasion. But of course, our show is about evangelical faith and the chinks in the armor and the flaws that exist with that. So that is going to be our subject for tonight. Counter-apologetics. Understanding what the Bible says, understanding how evangelicals think, and using that information to talk, to open a dialogue, to not necessarily pick fights, not necessarily get angry, not necessarily to assert our position is right, but to simply have points of dialogue. Whether it's intentioned or not, I think that we fall into this trap of needing to be right every bit as much as they do. Mm. And hopefully by the time we're done tonight, you'll have a little bit better of an idea of how to avoid that particular pitfall. Because It's not about being right. We know that we're right. But then again, they think that they know that they're right. So that's where the biggest clash comes in when you're trying to have a dialogue with someone who believes this and you know that that belief isn't based on anything except what a book says. So that is what we're going to be talking about tonight. How do you open up that dialogue and how do you make it productive and how do you get people to start steering their thinking a little bit and spoiler alert it's very very difficult and not always very likely but there are some approaches to this that i think are much better than others so hopefully we're going to show you a slightly better way as we go tonight before that just a quick appeal our patreon account is located at patreon.com slash unbound podcast network if you have a fiver you can throw our way we would definitely appreciate the help and support if not i know we're in the middle of this ongoing thing where people are out of work and it's just difficult and we get that and we want you to have access to the content and not feel like you have to give back 
But if you can, we certainly hope that you will at least consider helping us out in this way. And also in every other way that we talk about, same call to action as I always give. Tell someone new about our show this week. Share our content on social media. That's any of our social media content, plus episodes that mean something to you and are relevant to the conversation that you're having with someone. You never know whose life is going to be changed for the better or just have those seeds sown. And that's one of the other things we're going to be talking about with this is how we can use the concept of sowing seeds that is familiar to the evangelical in a way that is actually productive and not divisive. If you're able to help us out, we appreciate it. Otherwise, just keep listening because we want to be able to continue doing this for you because that's why we're here. We're here to do this for you and to make the experience of Unbound something that remains valuable to you, whether or not you have the means to give back to it in monetary ways. There are plenty of ways that you can give back. And we thank you for coming back every week and listening to what we have to say and supporting what we do in whatever way you're supporting us. And downloads are definitely a way of supporting us. So if that's all you're doing and it's all you can afford to do, that's fine too. Just keep listening. We're here for you. And with that, onward into our main topic. Now, the first thing that came to mind for me when I was putting this episode together was the parable of the sower. This is one of those stories that the writers of the Gospels thought were important enough to include in each one of the synoptics, and that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This parable shows up in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8. It's a very familiar story, so I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But basically, this is the way that Jesus describes the types of people and the types of attitudes that are expressed and conveyed when the gospel is presented to them. And there are three distinct types. You've got the thorny ground, you've got the rocky ground, and then you've got the good soil. So thorny ground represents people who get defensive when their own beliefs are challenged or when they are presented with ideas that are foreign and uncomfortable. And they return volley with all manner of attitude. And that attitude can be aggression, it can be anger, it can be fear, but just think about those things that kind of grate on you. That's the whole metaphor of thorns there. These things kind of rub you a little bit raw. Then you've got the seeds that fall on the rocks, and those are people who are impervious to the messaging. They're never going to listen to you, and the message is just going to fall flat and never really be heard or considered. And then you've got the good soil. These are the people who are more open-minded. They are interested in new ideas and new concepts, and they want to hear what you have to say. So taking it away from the concept of the gospel, we can observe this sort of thing in atheistic messaging as well. We can see all these different types of people. And honestly, the vast majority is going to fall on the thorny ground. There will be those who will just completely dismiss it outright. They won't want to talk to you about it. They will be varying levels of polite about telling you that they don't want to hear about it. But the larger group there is definitely the ones who have those irritations over their beliefs being challenged. And that's the group that I kind of want to focus on. These are the people that I want us thinking about as we talk tonight, because they're the biggest group and they are the most likely 
for us to encounter, even if they come to us in the spirit of debate, they will become very defensive. And that's why I also don't think that we need to be taking an evangelistic approach to this. We don't necessarily need to invade their space. This podcast is out there. You can listen to it or you can choose not to. No one is going up and down streets and blaring it with a bullhorn so that people have to hear it. No, that's not the point. The point is that the right people are going to hear the message. Those are the people who exist among the thorns, and it's the good soil. And I know that we've got people out there listening who are part of that good soil group, too. That really is the truth seekers part of this. We say it at the beginning of every episode that this show is for new atheists, lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. So think in terms of the thorny ground people and think in terms of the truth seekers, because these are the people that we really, really want to reach. And we can't get all up in arms about not reaching the others because they have their own choices to make. They're going to make them Whether they're good choices or bad choices, we already know what the answer is to that, but there's very little that we can do to quote unquote change people if they don't want to be changed and if they're going to be closed off to the concept of change. So the parable of the sower definitely provides a good foundation here. When you reverse engineer this parable, we learn something that I've said many times before. The way people think hasn't changed much over time, and the principles in the parable translate well to basically any kind of debate. People will either resent the message, lend it momentary attention and dismiss it, or think about it and let those thoughts become more complex over time. Ideally, we'd like to see this last scenario be the one that wins out. In reality, the evangelical mind is very thorny ground and difficult to penetrate. And this is why I don't really try. Well, Spider, you do this show every week, so clearly you're trying. No, I'm just trying to put something out there for them to consume if they want it. There's a difference between that and constantly getting up in people's faces and confronting them with the realities of what they believe. I mean, I've gotten angry at times and thought to myself and even said to myself, buddy, if you do not let up with all this evangelical BS... I will come at you with both guns blazing and you will not get to sleep tonight. But those are thoughts. I've never, never once approached someone like that. They're just thoughts in my head. And that I think can turn problematic quickly if you allow those thoughts to germinate and start thinking about ways that you can militarize your own messaging. We've talked about this in past episodes where there's a real aggressive and militaristic aspect to a lot of the ways that evangelicals think and have been conditioned to think. So that kind of game is not going to work on them. But there are elements to the way that they think and the way that they do things that we can turn around and use in an advantageous sort of way. And we'll get into some of those ways a little later. But I don't try to hit people over the head with the messaging of atheism, mostly because there's very little point to it. What I do with my show and when I'm talking to people one-to-one is I provide point-counterpoint, make suggestions for ways to replace toxic thoughts and behaviors with healthy ones, but it's never in my head to try, try to change someone's mind. I think the messaging will do that on its own when the person is ready. This kind of just the facts approach that I take with this show or that Michelle and I take with this show and in the way that I deal with people in general will 
always be minimally effective, and I know it. But just like in the parable, once in a while, those seeds fall on good soil, and that's one less lifelong casualty of this religion that we have created. The concept of leaving the 99 to save the one also works well here because the ones who listen and hear will always be in the minority, but they're worth saving from this religion and the things it does to rob people of their lives and identities. And I also think about the story of the, the kid and the starfish, yeah. where there are all these starfish washed up on shore, and he's just throwing them back into the ocean one after another. And this old man walks up to him and says, don't you understand this is a pointless effort that most of these starfish are going to die? Well, yes, I do understand that. Then why do you think what you're doing matters? And he picks up a starfish and says, it matters to this one, doesn't it? And throws it back. If I can just pick up a few starfish along the way and save them, mm -hmm. then, you know, I, I feel like I've done my job. The likelihood of changing an evangelical's mind about anything mm -hmm. is very unlikely. That isn't the point of debating with them. In my opinion, the only way to get through to an evangelical is to play their game their way. This is where the concept of sowing seeds comes into play. The whole point of this show is not deconversion. While I would like to think that I have the power and magnetism to get people to ditch their faith as the result of listening to a podcast, I know that that's not something that's going to happen. This is why I take the approach that I do with this. I can get a little passionate and even a little aggressive with my tone and language at times, and I know it. But at the end of the day, the goal of Unbound is to plant those seeds. It's easy to dismiss the truth in the heat of the moment, and it's easy to close off your mind when your opinions are being challenged. But the words get heard, and I promise you, when they aren't in defense mode anymore, those words play back in people's heads. They think about them when you're not there motivating them to think about them. They come back. How much they think about them? Well, you know, that depends on the person. Is this somebody who's happy in their faith? Is this someone who got saved when they were two years old and can't fathom anything else? Or is it someone who looks up once in a while and looks out at the congregation in their church and starts recognizing things being a little bit off? here and there, and starts recognizing them a little bit more and more over time. These are the types of people that are going to hear what you have to say and at least mentally do something with it. Now, some approaches are flat out ineffective and, in my opinion, aren't supposed to change how people think. Far too often, atheists fall into the same trap that evangelicals do. We become obsessed with being right. And at that point, it becomes far less about conveying truths and far too much about assaulting people with knowledge. And, you know, I don't want to badmouth this show because I've learned a lot watching this show. I started watching it when I was still Wiccan, and the things that they brought up and the way that they explained things were most of what gave me the courage to admit that I was an atheist. But there's a show out there called The Atheist Experience that is run by the ACA, the Atheist Community of Austin, that has had its fair share of controversy over the last couple of years. And you can see differences in the way that things are presented and the attitudes of some of the people that are still on that show. So I don't necessarily want to badmouth it, but I do think that there are numerous examples where they teach us more how not to deal 
with theists than they do how to deal with them. Things get very repetitive. Things get very overheated very quickly. And I think that these things are very counterproductive. I've referred to it in the past as thug deconversion, which may sound like a little bit of a shot just on its face like that, but it's really more of a commentary on the way that they go about doing things. This is a show that's been out there for a long time, and every week it just seems to have the same kind of feel, and that's not really on them. It's because most theists are real one-trick ponies. They don't have very developed right. apologetics, and that's why there's so much repetitiveness, because they keep making the same arguments over and over and over again. And some of these people have been countering those arguments for 20 years on the air and longer in their own personal lives. So I get the frustration angle and I get the passion because, I mean, I want people's lives to change. I want them out from under the thumb of this religion really, really, really badly. But I also know that calling people idiots and swearing at them and hanging up on them when they're doing their, I don't even want to say if they're doing their best, if they are at least putting forth an effort to make their point, then I feel like we have an obligation to do what we expect them to do and listen. And a lot of times there isn't a lot of listening going on when someone calls in to any talk show about this and presents an opinion that they know, they have to know going in, is a losing argument. Right. How many times have you heard on that show, we've got this caller from wherever who says that he has definitive proof that God exists. How many times do you hear that? You hear it at least once a week. And there are other things too. And yeah, I do understand why some atheists take a more aggressive approach to the way that they handle this. Some people do need to have the truth kind of knocked into them. But the vast majority, they they just want to be right. We all want to be right. So rather than slamming them over the head with the ways that they're wrong, how about just listening to what they have to say and then providing your point counterpoint to what they say? And I do think that what evangelical faith does to people is cause for righteous anger. Right. The things that this religion cultivates, the attitudes and the way that it completely robs people of their very lives is cause for righteous anger, but not with them. How many times have I said it? It's the system that created them. It's not them. So yelling and swearing at them is not going to get us anywhere. And I also think that there's a real sense of urgency to getting this message in front of as many people as possible and when possible before they've made that plunge into evangelical Christianity, which is difficult when you consider how many young children get ensnared in this before they even have a say right. in whether or not they're going to go to church on Sunday. So there's definitely an urgency to it to get to the ones who are in that over 18 category mm. who... 80% of them are, are not going to accept Christ anyway, but let's deal with the 20% whose insecurities and low self-esteem and all the other things that play into them wanting to give their lives over to something else. We, we need to get in front of them before those things take a foothold. So yeah, there is an urgency to it as well. But when that passion isn't mixed with a healthy dose of empathy and compassion, what comes out can definitely be interpreted as boorishness and arrogance, and it is. 
I'm just going to put that right out there. There have been many moments where not just atheist experience, where I've seen other debates on other platforms that have kind of degenerated into shouting matches. Yeah. And I just don't see the point of that. No. I can righteous anger with the best of them. And, and anyone who's been listening to this show for a while has heard it more than once. And I've had my own share of pejoratives to throw out there, but not typically at specific individuals, just at the thinking, the thought processes that go into what some of these people do and say. And I have walked away from a few episodes thinking, okay, you kind of have to soften that up. You kind of have to take that out a little bit because it kind of goes counter to what you're saying all the time about being angry at the system and not the person. But here's the thing. It's the people that are perpetuating the system. Right. So they need to be taught better. And when I say taught better, I mean not yelled at, sworn at, or called names. They need to be taught like any teacher would teach their class. And I can tell you from experience that I had a teacher in eighth grade who took that kind of an approach when it came to math. And I was just having a very hard time with some of the concepts that were being taught in that class. And I don't even remember what I asked him on this one day, but I remember him looking at me like I was a complete idiot. And he said to me, are you being serious with me right now? You stopped my class for that. Here's an idea. Why don't you just sit there and listen and don't raise your hand again until you have an intelligent question to ask? Wow. Wow. And you know what? It made it almost impossible for me to learn math after that. Oh, yeah. I was always in remedial math classes and it was etched into my brain that I was too stupid to understand this stuff. Mm -hmm. So for a long time, I believed it and didn't do well with math. So I do not want to etch those sorts of messages into people's brains when it comes to how they present their faith. It's like, so you believe that God exists because the Bible says so. Well, why don't you come back and talk to me when you have an intelligent argument to make? Mm -hmm. It's never going to happen because that's the most intelligent argument that they have because that's what they have been taught is true. Right. So you have to springboard it from that point and work with that, not against it. So how do we go about opening healthy dialogues or simply sowing seeds in that thorny ground kind of environment and maybe make our way into the good soil once in a while? First, it starts by doing something that most evangelicals never do on their own, reading and understanding the Bible. I know it sounds loathsome, but it's necessary. And on average, atheists read the Bible more than most evangelicals do. Now, this brings me to the topic of exegesis, and I have used this term on the show before, and it's kind of stuck in my mind that the type of listener, the type of ex-evangelical who listens to this show probably understands what this is and can conceptualize it. But for the rest, I just want to go through this a little bit. Not going to spend a lot of time on it because I think that a lot of this process is largely pointless because it doesn't lead to anything that even remotely resembles truth. But I do think that there are elements to this that we need to start implementing and understanding what the Bible says, not just the words at base value, although I think that it's important to understand that most people are never going to look past the face value of the words. And that right there gives the words 
that kind of toxic value that is very difficult to circumvent. But there's more to it. This can be a very involved process. And if you really want to dig into it, I've got links to two pages in the show notes that are basically a training course on how to do exegesis. And the funny thing is, as I read through this, it almost, almost looked like the guide that we got in our Theo classes. Oh, yeah. From that one professor (laughs) who was very, very thorough with this. We both wound up writing very lengthy exegetical papers for this same professor. Yeah. Just to put it in perspective for you, an average term paper in this sorry excuse for a college was only 10 pages. Right. This particular paper for this particular class was 40 pages long. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So that gives you an idea of how involved this process can get. I'm going to make it a lot simpler, mostly because so much of this is a clear waste of time. Exegesis is the process of determining the meaning of a passage in the Bible in proper context. It's a largely pointless effort from the standpoint of trying to pull quote unquote spiritual truths or sound interpretations from the texts, which are too of the main goals of exegesis, but the core principles are vital when it comes to dismantling the messaging. So it can be used in reverse fashion of what it was intended. Lots of theologians or self-proclaimed theologians spend lots of time developing this process, but I don't think that they realized just how easy they made it for people like us to use it against them. So what is biblical exegesis? I gave you my definition, and here's a little quote from libguides.marquette.edu, and this is the the links in the show notes also. Quote, exegesis is the process of careful analytical study of biblical passages undertaken in order to produce useful interpretations of those passages. Ideally, exegesis involves the analysis of the biblical text in the language of its original and earliest available form, and there are problems with that too that I'll get into in a couple of minutes. To whittle this down a little bit more, exegesis involves a few key elements. Understanding the genre of the passage, and this little alliteration is my own thing. Right. Prose, poetry, pen pals, and prophecy. <laughs> so what that breaks down to is prose are the books of the Bible that are pure storytelling, particularly the Pentateuch, which is the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, And then there are others. There are plenty of others in the Old Testament that meet the criteria of prose. Then there's poetry, and that encompasses books like Psalms, the Song of Solomon. Proverbs? Proverbs. Yeah. Ecclesiastes would fall under that category. And there are a couple of others in there in the Old Testament, too. Prophecy is just that. It's all the books of the prophets in the Old Testament, and also the book of Revelation, which is a quote-unquote prophetic book also. And then Pen Pals refers to most of the New Testament because the vast majority of the New Testament is made up of what are called epistles, which are basically letters either to groups of people or to individuals. Right. Those are the key genres in the Bible. The next part of it is establishing where a thought begins and ends. And this kind of... It's supposed to be somewhat of a safeguard against taking things out of context because you're looking at a passage and trying to determine where the thought begins and ends. In exegetical terms, this is called defining the limits of pericope. 
And that's really a big fluffed up word that basically means what we all learn how to do in late elementary school when we're taking information apart and trying to decide where the paragraphs split. More than anything, that's what that is. Then you've got the main idea. What is the key concept that is trying to be conveyed in this passage? And when you're writing an exegetical paper, that becomes your thesis. Then you've got considerations like historical and literary contexts. And these things do matter. There was one thing that I brought up either last week or in a recent episode where we talked about the whole concept of if a man is caught raping a woman, or in some interpretations, this is just a couple of teenagers that get caught having sex. That's what we're talking about here, the historical and literary contexts, and at least considering what the various messages could be in that passage. Then you've got contextual language analysis, which comes in the form of using concordances. Young's Analytical and Strong's Exhaustive were the ones that we used the most. They're still the two biggest players out there. And then you deal with the progression of ideas and thoughts in the passage. You have the main idea, which is your thesis, and then you start breaking it down more and coming up with what the various thoughts are that make up this complete idea in the passage based on where you've determined it begins and ends. So, yeah. Sounds really exciting, doesn't it? (laughs) Really, really exciting stuff. But the good news is that you don't have to typically get that involved in it. Following all these steps in an exhaustive way isn't always or even usually necessary. The most important elements are context and language, which is what I appeal to when I'm trying to find the quote-unquote truth behind the words, when I'm trying to ascertain what was actually being said based on who these words were written to and what words were used in the oldest or most reliable manuscripts out there. I skip consulting commentaries in most instances, which is a huge part of exegesis. And I approach it that way because there's no such thing as an unbiased analysis of any biblical passage. This part always annoyed me because it really came down to deciding which interpretation I agreed with most or which one showed up most often. So if a bunch of different commentators said the same thing about a passage, that was supposed to make it true and accurate or the most true. I think that that's what this one professor would have classified it as. What is the most likely truth that's going on here? But here's the thing. Neither of these approaches leads to truth because like with any novel, the Bible has as many interpretations as it has people to read it. You can't apply truth to fiction, but you can pull truth from it if you're doing a pure, unbiased analysis without the aid of confirmation bias, which is how many fledgling biblical scholars approach exegesis. They have their own ideas going in and they seek sources that will corroborate what they already think. This is not at all responsible. It's not a responsible way to approach this at all, especially when you are trying to dig the real truth out of what's going on in scripture. And when I say dig the real truth, I mean basically exposing what these words are really saying and what the actual purpose is of 
these words being here in this place, in this book. Being that I had all kinds of training in this, this is the way that my brain works when I'm working with this stuff. All you really need to understand about this is that you need to know the context of any verse that you pull out, and you need to understand what the original language, to the best of your ability, what the original language had to say and what those words meant to the people who were reading it then. So that's most of it right there. There's another aspect to this argument that springs from the fact that people aren't going to care how much research you've done, and they aren't going to sit through a long dissertation. No one, even if I exegeted a passage and wanted to sit down and talk to a theist about it, they're not going to sit there and wait for me to read through 40 pages right. of what I discovered. This is why it's necessary to reduce the process down to these actually three elements. Number one, choose verses with traceable contextual agreement to your argument. And that's not doing confirmation bias. That's just making sure that a concept shows up more than once and that you are able to ascertain precisely what's going on in those verses. The verses that you choose should absolutely and directly apply to the conversation that you're having or the point that you're trying to make. Next, understand the words used in the most reliable manuscripts. There's no such thing as the quote-unquote original text, seeing as we don't have the original Bible to work with. You also need to understand how those words shape the meaning of the passage. And finally, be prepared to explain your position based on those first two criteria. So that's pretty much the way that I handle it when I'm doing research for this show or if something comes up in a uh, in a discussion on social media and I want to be sure of what my position is this is the criteria that I turn to now I will from time to time consult commentaries just to be sure that I'm conveying the message in a way that evangelicals will understand but I'm almost always using the commentator's words against him I'll say things like a popular opinion among biblical scholars is blank but that can't be true because you see, it's reverse it's reverse analysis right. based on the, the structure of exegesis, but it works and it can be very effective when it's used the right way. Now, I also want to make it clear that this is not something that I do specifically to prepare for a debate. It's something that I do to make sure that I understand the messaging so that when I'm called upon to defend or refute a point, I have a foundation to work from. I may need to look some stuff up. I may need to make make sure that I'm sure about the position that I'm taking with this, but I'm not doing it just to create an arsenal of point-counterpoint. That's not the point at all. At the end of the day, people are going to interpret the words any way they want, or more to the point, the way that validates their position. Remember, as you go through this process and as you interact with people who have different opinions from yours, understand that your goal here is to educate, not convince. There's a huge difference between the two. This is why I say do this for yourself and for the purpose of building your counter-apologetic and having clearly defined perspectives at the ready whenever certain arguments arise. It's the whole concept of being instant in season and being able to give an answer right. for the things that you believe or the positions that you hold. That's a biblical concept. And guess what? We can use that. Right. We can absolutely use that. Yeah. 
And now let's try and get inside the mind of the average evangelical when it comes to the whole concept of providing the point-counterpoint. For the most part, evangelicals will gravitate to several basic arguments when it comes to defending their positions. It all boils down to three basic things. What the Bible says, what the Lord told me, or I can prove that God exists or prove any spiritual point that I wish to make. And that third point typically brings us right back to number one. It's an endless game of who's on first. Hmm. Well, the Bible says this. Yeah, but the Bible is only a book. Well, no, it isn't. It's the inspired word of God. And how do you know this? Because the Lord speaks to me through its words. Really? Well, if I asked God to speak to me, would he? Well, of course he would. Okay, um, God, God, come in, God, spider to God, come in, God. Yeah, you know, I'm not getting anything here. Well, you're mocking him. I wouldn't answer you either. Well, I would assume that if he existed, he'd want me to know he exists. Well, he does exist. Do you have proof? Well, yes. And what's your proof? The Bible. Third base. Yeah. That's the kind of circular reasoning that they use because they don't have anything else. There are several key concepts that are absent from nearly every argument that Christians make in defense of their faith. And those things are, and they're big things, things like evidence. And just for the sake of example, they'll tell you that heaven is a real place. And then my response is, well, please show me proof that heaven is a real place. The Bible. Third base. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Then there's the little problem of facts. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to get to God, and you need to accept his gift of salvation if you want to be saved. Okay, well, please show me proof that Jesus is the only way to God. Well, the Bible says, third base. Yeah. Then there's the little problem of logic. You need to be set free from sin. Well, Please explain why God would allow sin into the world and then blame people for succumbing to it. A lot of times you get the busy signal on that one. They don't yeah. even go to the whole, well, the Bible says thing, because it's so difficult to piece together an answer to that question because right. they want their God to be good. Yeah. And this does not paint him in a good light at all. So a lot of times they don't even know how to deal with that one. The whole reason aspect of it is the biggest barrier to all of this. So now that I just gave you a little thumbnail sketch of the types of thoughts that are attached to each of these concepts, it's time to head into battle, right? Or is it? So... To answer that question, I'm going to comment quite a bit going forward from an article I found on danielmeisler.com. The link is in the show notes in two places, so you should be able to find it just fine. I'm going to draw from this quite a bit, and believe it or not, there are definitely times when you want to let sleeping dogs lie and not even have the conversation. They're few and far between, but they exist and they are important. Here are just a couple of examples. When you're dealing with a person who refuses to be educated, and let's be honest here, that accounts for a large number of evangelicals. In this instance, when you know that the conversation is going nowhere, the author suggests, and rightly so, that you simply shut down the dialogue. And I like the verbiage that he uses here. I think in one way this is good, and in another, 
I think that it opens up the door for more debate and more conversation because this is a real final word kind of thing that you can say. But putting your own spin on it and the way that you say it, the tone of voice in which you say it can convey different things. So this is what he suggests that you say in those instances. Well, if you are someone who holds beliefs without regard for actual evidence, then I have no interest in continuing this conversation. Basically, if facts don't sway your beliefs, then there's no reason I should believe I will be successful either. This is kind of Dale Carnegie in reverse, because I can remember in How to Win Friends and Influence People, where he talks about giving people a reputation that they can't live without. Right. Well, this is kind of the opposite of that. You are giving them a a reputation that's supposed to make them feel uncomfortable and eventually spark interest, which is not going to work in the vast majority of cases. But it's also not the worst way that you can close a conversation about this. And it bombards them with logic, too, which is something that the evangelical mind doesn't process very well. It could take a while for someone that you say this to to understand what's been said to them. And they can either respond with, hey, Mm -hmm. or they can respond with, well, he kind of had a point. It's going to be, hey, a lot more often, but that's okay. (laughs) And the other thing that he brings up, and this, this is a very, very good point, and I really want you to hear this. It's pointless debating with someone if that person's life will not improve as a result of deconversion. We're talking about people with things like terminal illnesses, where all they're thinking about is how God is going to welcome them home and that they're not going to be in pain anymore and how great heaven is going to be. At that point, you're better off just letting them believe it. When you're dealing with people whose entire lives are built on their faith and you don't want to upset the apple cart with people whose entire lives are built on their faith and would lose their identity in the process of deconversion. Remember, the goal here is to change people's lives for the better, not fill their final days and moments with thoughts of fear and anxiety over whether or not what they believe is actually true. There comes a point where you just kind of have to let them believe it. And those are two of them. And the second one, much more than the first one. I can't even begin to imagine what would have happened if I had had this epiphany about my own faith while my grandmother was still alive. And I was the one that led her to Christ. And now I'm trying to lead her away. I couldn't even begin to to imagine that. And it's also why I don't engage with my mother on this and a number of other points mostly related to this. The way I see it, my mother is in her 70s. That ship has sailed and it's coasting along down a lazy river called evangelical security. And I do not want to be the one that capsizes that boat. In the end, she'll never know that she was wrong. And that's true of everybody. When we die, we're dead. There's no self-assessment, no ecclesiastical judgment, no instant replay. So what does it really matter? She and anyone else to whom this applies will die never knowing how badly they've been duped. And bonus, it won't matter. They won't have a living brain to process it anymore. Now let's look at how to approach the subject of debate in instances where is appropriate. So we just talked about a couple of points where you just want to back off. And we're not moving into both guns blazing mode here, but we are assuming that there's a conversation to be had 
and we're going to try to piece together the right way to have it. The author of the article asserts three distinct foundations for evangelical defenses of their faith. It almost always springs from one of these three assertions. What they believe is true, their faith enhances their lives and does good for others, and that atheism is just another belief system. So let's take a couple of minutes and take these things apart. When it comes to the whole what they believe is true part of it, literal interpretations of the Bible and a lot of evangelicals will tell you that you should absolutely positively take the Bible literally. And this same professor kind of dealt with that at one point where he asked the entire class, is everything in the Bible true? Yes. Is the Bible the all authoritative word of God? Yes. Should we do everything that the Bible says? Yes. And then he had someone open up to that passage in one of the epistles, I don't remember where it is, where Paul asks the recipient, of the letter to bring his cloak and his scrolls to him in prison. Yes. So the point that was being made there is, are we supposed to do everything the Bible says? Okay, well, then go grab Paul's cloak and go grab his scrolls and bring them to him in prison. We're supposed to do everything the Bible says. So that was kind of a knock in the head yeah. to some of the people who were in the room that day. But it definitely makes a point. Literal interpretations of the Bible, they can run the gambit between pointless and dangerous. Yeah. So you got to be very careful. I mean, when, when you consider some of the things that are in the Bible, we're talking about things like conniving snakes, talking donkeys, falling massive structures by yelling at them. Yes. I mean, come on now. <laughs> and we're supposed to take this stuff literally. No, it's storybook fantasy and right. nothing else. But they're also, I mean, I, I think it goes without saying that the Bible is rife with contradictions. Right. So you can take a literal approach to it, but which of these things am I supposed to cling to here? Which am I supposed to believe? And I don't think I even need to link to a source for this because the examples are so plentiful. All you need to do is hop on Google and type in biblical contradictions and then just get comfy and read because you're going to be there for a while. Yeah. I think the one that the author of this article brought up was the whole notion of what actually happened to Judas. Because right. in the Gospels, I think I think this part of it only shows up in John's Gospel, but yeah. I would have to look that up. I'm pretty sure it's John's Gospel, where Judas then, he, he gets paid off to give up Jesus to the authorities. And then he feels guilty. And he takes the 30 pieces of silver that he's been paid for Jesus's head and casts them at the feet of the people who paid him off. That's what's in the Gospels. Then you read one book over in the book of Acts. And in the very beginning, they make a point of telling you what happened to Judas. And as the story goes there, Judas took the money that he was paid, bought a potter's field where he fell headlong and all his intestines burst out. Yes. Different, different way to die. I yeah, but you know what? I can remember sitting in, I, whether it was Synoptic Gospels or one of the plethora of New Testament survey classes, Oy. I think it actually was New Testament survey, where we got into this and the professor, I loved this guy. I really did. But even then, and even in the mind place that I was, I sat there and listened to his interpretation of this and said, oh, come on, dude. <laughs> Come on, guy. There's no possible yeah. way that you can make a parallel between what this says and what this says. 
And the argument that he tried to make for that was that Judas did return the money and the potter's field was then purchased in his name. And since it was technically his property, he went there to commit suicide. And, And he hanged himself. And because there was no one around to cut the body down, the body started to bloat and eventually, boom, exploded in the heat. Yep. That was how we were supposed to piece these two things together and find a single truth in them. Yep. Come on. I think I was in that class, too. Well, we all took that class. And we all took it with the same professor who had all of the same overhead slides (laughs) that he had been using for 30 years. Yes. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm certain that we heard the same thing from yeah. the same guy. Probably. And that was one of my favorite profs. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the funny part. He was one of my favorites, but I still had an oh, come on moment with that one. Well, yeah. Totally. Just a last bit on the whole um, what we believe is true thing. There's no way to trace back an original manuscript in right. the Bible. Every last one that is out there, every last version of the Bible that we read today was written from copies. And how those copies compare to what the originals had to say is anybody's guess. But if we know anything at all about people, we know that messaging changes, especially in instances where oral tradition becomes written tradition. Things change drastically. A lot of times what happened was that people would write down what they remembered that was given to them in oral tradition, but it's like a game of telephone. Right. The details are going to get changed and skewed and flipped, turned upside down. And then you really don't know what the actual message was supposed to be. And this is a major problem with the Bible because we don't have the originals. We cannot say definitively that the word of God says this because all we have are copies. Yeah. And that's all we're ever going to have are copies. If I had to, and it's, it's just conjecture, but if I had to make a good guess as to what happened with the originals, People who were way smarter than the people who wrote them got a hold of them and tried to get rid of them. Yeah. Things got burned. Things got stolen. Things got thrown in the ocean. Whatever happened, they're just not there anymore. Right. So, you know, who knows what the Bible really, honestly, literally says about anything. We don't have anything to go by. That tells us definitively. Along those lines, there are plenty of passages in the quote unquote word of God that have been argued to be redactor's notes or translator commentary, and evidence exists to corroborate claims of flat-out changing, excluding, and embellishing information that the quote-unquote translators found important or had personal issues with. This is supposed to be the word of God. Why, then, have so many people over the years questioned its contents, concepts, and trajectory in its messaging? Let's also keep in mind that the Bible was meant to persuade Bronze Age humans who knew nothing about science, were minimally educated, if at all, and quite often couldn't even read, thereby guaranteeing that they would have to trust the opinions and assertions of others to gain knowledge in the area of religion. It was made to persuade them. In the Information Age, obviously, access to better information could and should put a stop to all of it. And yet it doesn't. Why? Because even modern humans 
find it easier to let other people do their thinking for them and too often choose comforting lies over uncomfortable truths. The notion of heaven, as skewed as it has gotten over time, is still more comforting than the notion of simply expiring. So people choose to believe in heaven and dismiss the idea that they're simply going to die. Mm -hmm. That's just one example. The other part of it is that their parents taught them all these things, therefore they must be true. But then there's the little problem of their parents also leading them to believe in things like Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy that eventually turn out not to be true, mm. but also have more physical evidences behind them than anything that they're going to learn about their God. That, I think, makes it a little bit worse. Then there's the concept of faith-enhancing lives and doing good for others. My life is better with Jesus in it. And we've all heard the dramatic conversion stories of people who claim that their religion literally saved their lives. I've heard it more than once. It gives them something to live for. It provides a moral compass. It alleviates the fear of death. And these aren't necessarily bad things. And I've seen these transformations happen in people. There was one guy in particular who came on a VN weekend and he was very hard-edged. We wondered whether or not we were going to be able to manage him being on this weekend because he had such an attitude and there were all kinds of questions strategizing between the table leaders as to how we were going to make sure that he a didn't create a disruption and b got something out of this well i think we managed to accomplish both of those goals because i never saw the kind of radical transformation in the course of about 48 hours that i saw in this kid and he came on team with us like a year later. And he was a different person. He was a very, very compelling argument for the whole new creation aspect of salvation right. because he was unrecognizable from himself then. So I can totally and completely understand why someone would adopt this thing and then just hold on to it for dear life because they've convinced themselves that their lives are better because of this. Well, it's not that their lives are better because of this. It's because someone got them to stop and think about themselves a little bit. And now they've got this anchor to this imaginary entity that they think is helping them when in reality, they're the ones making all the changes. Right. And they're the ones that are making better decisions about the way that they live. But for some, it's just easier to put that on God. Right. Those are the toughest nuts to crack. And I think that in some circumstances, they fall under the category of leave this one alone. Right. In certain instances, I think that it's a better idea to just let them have this notion. Because if it is helping them to be a better person, if it's helping them to feel better about themselves, if it's helping them to not put a bullet in their own head, then to me, at that point, it becomes the lesser of two evils too. And just on the heels of that, people often stick with their religion because it makes them feel good. And it comes with a lot of perks. It provides things like community and acceptance, a sense of being loved, a sense of control over their destiny, and more. Their thoughts become so fixated on their religion being the source of these things, they're often literally oblivious to the fact that there are other outlets for all of them and anything else their religion provides in the way of comfort, self-worth, moral guidance, and whatever. 
It is in our nature to gravitate toward things that make us feel good, but just because it feels good does not mean that it has any real benefit. Your average heroin addict will tell you that shooting up makes them feel good, but they fail to weigh the long-term damage it does to their bodies, their minds, their senses of self, all of it against the short-term satisfaction of that high and that behavior that they're engaging in. So just because it feels good doesn't mean that it's good for you. And I remember saying a few episodes back that if it feels good, then you should explore it. Well, that's true when it comes to things that are self-affirming and things that enhance your life. But you have to really assess what the enhancements are to your life following a religion like this that makes a lot of promises, but really doesn't deliver much. And when it fails to deliver, it's placed back on the individual. Well, you don't have enough faith. Well, you need to pray more. Well, you need to read your Bible more. You need to do this and this and this and this and this. That's how those objections are handled. So when I say, if it feels good, it's not necessarily profitable. Those are the types of things that I'm talking about. You get saved and you get those Jesus NREs and you are just completely in love with the notion of this religion and this life. And then reality strikes, you know, just because it felt good to walk down to that altar doesn't mean that this is going to be long-term good for you to base your life on. Right. The last part of this is where they come back at us and tell us that atheism is just another belief system. Well, no, it's not. I would never make a definitive statement like there is no God because I have no proof for the existence or non-existence of a God. I don't have any proof one way or the other. And while there are a few very pointed exceptions, it is nigh unto impossible to prove a negative. It's not that I don't believe in God. I will, however, assert things like if there is a God or multiple gods or any kind of higher intelligence out there, it isn't making itself known. And if it understands logic the way that I do, it would simply reveal itself and end the debate. I'll also assert definitively that if there is a God, the Hebrew Yahweh isn't it, with my primary argument being the sheer disparity between how he interacted with primitive humans and his conspicuous lack of involvement with modern ones. Again, it makes sense for him to reveal himself, and judging by his insanely narcissistic, self-gratifying persona, there's no way he could restrain himself from exercising the full extent of his power and making our lives a living hell day to day. It would not be a fun world with Yahweh interacting with us directly. It just would not. The bottom line on this point is that non-belief is not belief. It's a call for proof. Prove that your God exists and I'll change my mind. In much the same way that I got on this very show where I encouraged masking, but also complained about masks making me rebreathe CO2. I then had to retract that statement several episodes later when a presentation of sound evidence from credible sources made me understand that I was wrong and that the trouble breathing in a mask was based on personal discomfort, irritation, and anxiety, not rebreathing carbon dioxide. I'm more than happy to apply the same deference to the existence of God. Show me proof and I will change my mind. I'm not right all the time and I know it. Here's the other very important end of that. I'm also not afraid of being wrong and being taught better. 
I want my opinions to be valid. I want my words and messaging to have credibility that goes beyond my own narrow-minded opinions. I want the things that I accept about life to be rooted in fact. So no, I don't embrace atheism as a matter of belief. I embrace it in the absence of a reason to believe. If proof of God, any God, ever presents itself, I will cease to be an atheist. I won't necessarily pledge my allegiance to it, but I'll gladly acknowledge that it's there. You see, that's the difference. Yeah. It's not that it's a belief system. It's not even really an anti-belief system. It's the lack of a belief in something that I have no proof exists, period. Okay? I'm not saying that there's no God. I'm saying that no God up till now has stood up and said, hey, I'm here. That's it. Some other common arguments that we hear all the time from theists that the that the author of this article goes through, and I, I like these a lot. And let's and I want to look at just a few, not all of them, but a few. One of the assertions that theists will make, evangelicals in particular, is that some of the worst people out there are atheists. Well, yes. There are good and bad eggs out there who identify as a lot of things. Stalin, for example, was an atheist, and he was not a very nice person. And he didn't have very good ideas about people and how people should interact with each other. He was not at all humanist in the way that he managed his thoughts and conveyed his ideas. And theists like bringing him up, but they'll also bring up Hitler, which I don't know where... Yeah. This notion that Hitler was an atheist came from, but it absolutely isn't true. His background was Catholic, and he was pretty damn devout. Yes. Okay? He was militantly theist, just like your average Klansman. Right. Same basic mindset, same basic drive. But neither Nazi nor white supremacist ideology is good for society, and both of these things are rooted in interpretations of Christianity. The next thing that they'll tell you is that you can't have good in the world without God. Well, why not? It is entirely possible to be good simply for the sake of being good without any thought to what an invisible, uninvolved entity thinks about it. I would further argue that the existence of God can work as well against the concept of good as it can for it. If a person lives an upright life, is empathetic toward his or her fellow humans, and devotes his or her life to improving people's lives, still goes to hell if they reject Christ, where is the good in that? Where is the positive in it? Why does Ted Bundy get to go to heaven? Because he prayed a prayer with um, James Dobson. Yeah. Why does he get to go to heaven while Aunt Sophie, who spent 50 years working in a soup kitchen or homeless shelter, has to go to hell simply for not believing in something absent of proof? You can't have good in the world without God. God brings his own signature brand of bad into the equation, and he does it without any help from any person. Mm. The next point that he brings up, and an argument that a lot of theists make, is that the improbable nature of our existence dictates that there is a creator and we are here as a manifestation of his will. All right, but are there any other possible explanations? Because if there are, and there are, then it is irresponsible to not explore them and lend them equal deference when deciding whether or not we are here by design or by chance. And let's talk about intelligent design on the heels of that. That's another one that they like to bring up. I love Neil deGrasse Tyson's take on this. Now, 
I'm linking to a video in the show notes where he covers all the ways that the universe demonstrates chaotic non-design as well as the inefficiencies in human genetics and anatomy. But just a couple of the points that he makes in this video. The universe is almost completely inhospitable to life, and that's true. There are very few places in this universe where you can go and just live. It's not like Star Wars where you can hop from planet to planet and breathe and there's vegetation and there's stuff that you can eat that won't kill you. It's not like that at all. The next point that he brings up is that 90% of all life that has shown up on Earth is now extinct. And this next part, oh, I love this next part. Limited visual and olfactory acuity that could protect us from things like radon and carbon monoxide are real problems when it comes to the idea of intelligent design. And he goes into a little bit more depth about this in the video, but the point that he's making is all of these things have visual and they have olfactory aspects to them, but we do not see the parts of the visual spectrum right. where these things exist and we cannot hear sound on the levels that these things vibrate. So the whole notion, and, and it's a big thing in, even, in evangelical circles to say, well, if you want proof of God, then just look at the human eye. Hmm. Okay, well, let's look at the human eye and let's understand how little we actually see. Right. I love the way that he puts it is that if we could see the entire visible spectrum, if we could see everything that there is to actually see, even for just a few moments, we would understand just how blind we really are. This poor reflection as in a mirror that we see with these eyes, even with 20-20 vision, there's more to be seen, but we can't see it because our eyes do not process it. We need to understand that science and Christianity are never going to mesh. They've been at odds literally for millennia. The concepts like what Neil deGrasse Tyson brings up in that video are always going to be flatly and immediately rejected in the heat of debate. But here's the thing. It's okay. Say it anyway. Let the good messaging out there anyway. Sow the seeds. Play the game their way. They might not want to think about it today, but who knows what just imparting the information will do to them over time. Just like with vaccinating. Right. Um, I gave this whole list of reasons why it's a good idea and assured people that it's safe. And yes, there are going to be side effects. Always be honest for certain. Yeah, there are some side effects that can be a little bit unpleasant with this, but there are reasons why you're experiencing them. So I feel like saying those words and saying them that way could, could sway some opinions. And that's the best that we can hope for. Now that these people have made their points to us, I think that it's important for us to have questions that we can come back at them with a little bit here too. The first and most important thing is to establish whether or not God is real. If we are to believe that God is all-knowing, that he can see everything, our pre-existence, our past, our future, he has to know what each and every one of our lives is going to look like from the way that we're raised to the way that we think and behave as adults. He knows what every serial killer will grow up to be. He knows which children in the world will die of starvation and which ones did in the few seconds it took for me to just say that. He knew what Hitler would do with the Jews, God's own chosen people. 
God knew what Hitler was going to do and allowed it. Why? There are only two conclusions that you can come to in situations like that. Either one, that God is inherently evil or insane, or that he is a human construct and has flaws. And in this instance, the only option the average Christian should be able to consider is option two. They don't. They go right back to the goodness of God, and we don't understand his ways, and we're not supposed to question the way that he does things or the decisions that he makes or the things that he allows to happen. Well, I'm sorry, but if you want me to worship you, then you need to qualify these things, okay? You don't get it just because. You need to prove to me that you are the way, the truth, and the life, not just say it. Neil deGrasse Tyson actually puts this another way. Given the nature of the universe and its clearly unstable and inhospitable attitude toward quote-unquote creation, why doesn't God just fix the flaws? Why are they even here in the first place? Why are people born with birth defects? Why is cancer a thing? Why do natural disasters happen? Why is there such a thing as COVID-19? Either your God is not all-powerful or he's not all good. An all-powerful God would fix the flaws. A good God would at least protect us from them. And that doesn't happen. Now, the next part of this that I really like, and I'm gonna, I'm actually going to pull up the article here so that I can follow along a little bit with what he's saying. There are some very damning words right there in the Bible that can collapse this entire house of cards. If we want just for a moment to return to this concept of, is everything that the Bible says true and should we do everything that the Bible says? Well, let's revisit that concept just for a few minutes and take a look at some of the things that are in this article when it comes to what the Bible says about specific things. There are all kinds of things that prove that God is not good, that he doesn't have our best interests at heart. Let's look at just some of these concepts, like the fact that blasphemy, just blasphemy, saying saying not nice things about God is punishable by death. And we see that not just in the Bible, we see this playing out in society particularly in parts of the world where monotheistic religion rules. We're a little bit, I don't even want to say more enlightened, but I think that we've moved past that kind of barbarism in this country where we don't just drag people out into the public square and cut their heads off for things like blasphemy. But there's biblical foundation for that kind of behavior. Leviticus 24.16 is one of the main verses One who blasphemes in the name of the Lord shall be put to death. The whole congregation shall stone the blasphemer. Aliens as well as citizens, when they blaspheme the name, shall be put to death. Oh, that's just all warm and fuzzy, isn't it? Mm. Adultery is punishable by death. Now, ask any average evangelical if they think that these are reasonable consequences for these behaviors, and they're going to tell you no, but they're also going to defend their God's right to exact them. That's the crazy part. Adultery is punishable by death. Leviticus 20.10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Dishonoring your mother and father is punishable by death. Anyone who dishonors father or mother must be put to death. Such a person is guilty of a capital offense. That's Leviticus chapter 20, verse 9. People who work on Sunday or, well, on the Sabbath, people who work on the Sabbath should be killed. And I think we brought this up 
recently too. Exodus 35 too. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day must be a Sabbath day of complete rest, a holy day dedicated to the Lord. Anyone who works on that day must be put to death. This is the way Yahweh deals with everything. Okay, do things my way or die. That's the Reader's Digest version of the entire message of the Old Testament. Non-virgin wives should be killed. We were mm. talking about this one. Yeah, like last week. Yeah. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her and charges her with shameful conduct, I've actually read this on the show before, and brings a bad name on her and says, I took this woman, and when I came to her, I found she was not a virgin. And evidences of virginity are not found for the young woman. What were we talking about? Mm -hmm. There aren't always evidences, are they? Then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones. Deuteronomy 22, 13 and 14, and 20 and 21. So if you don't have a hymen big enough to rupture the first time you have sex, yeah then you could be stoned in the public square, having never done a single thing wrong. Now, we've gone through this many, many times in conversation here. There's nothing wrong with slavery. Exodus 21 makes that point clear. And then there's Levitic Leviticus 25.44. Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them, you may buy slaves. God just gave you license to buy another person. Mm-hmm. And call them your property. Gays should be put to death. Uh, Leviticus 20.13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Women should, oh, I, I love how he, he just puts it just like this. Women should shut the hell up and do as they're told. And yeah. here we go. First Timothy 2.11 and 12 says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. All right, Paul, get over it. I'm sorry. The, the, so, so much of his stuff just oozes misogyny. I'll reprise my uh, my opinion here that the whole thorn in, thorn in his side thing had to do with him being a failure with women. And, I mean, can you guess why? Mm -hmm. I mean, think about it. Yeah. And I like what the author uh, has to say here, just as a cap to all of this. He says, now keep in mind, these aren't suggestions. They're not optional. Remember what Jesus said, whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, at least he doesn't say they'll die. Yeah. But I mean, when you consider what the Christian heaven is going to look like, what is it like for someone who is, quote unquote, the least in the kingdom? Yeah. I mean, what kind of eternity is that? So all of those verses that I just read should be taken seriously and literally goes right back to, is the Bible true and should we do everything it says? Well, guess what? If you believe that, then you believe we should be doing all of these things. You believe we should be executing people for saying, God damn it. You believe that if a teenager sasses his parents, then that's cause to kill them. You believe that you shouldn't, not, not only that you shouldn't work on the Sabbath, but if you do, then off with your head. These are things that if you believe that the Bible is 100% true, 
and inerrant and that you should do everything it says, then these are things that you should be doing. So just keep that in mind and keep it in mind as just that little extra bit of ammunition that you have when you ask them that question. I liked the more mild approach that our professor took with that and didn't go to any of those verses and just told us to bring Paul his cloak. You know, I'm, I, yeah. I think that it was a little bit more of a watered down way of looking at it. Right. But I also don't think that he wanted to call attention to all of this other stuff either because right. we, they don't like to think about it. No. They don't like to think about all the dark places that their book goes, but it goes to a lot of dark places. And it's something that we need to understand, recognize, and be ready to deal with when it's time for the whole point counterpoint thing to happen. So... Did you want to say anything before I finish this off? You haven't no. said much tonight. No, it's, at it's all. not really my area of expertise. Well, it's not a lot of people's area no. of expertise, but it's something that we need to get good at. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we need to understand the necessity of. I mean, I don't relish the idea of studying the Bible, but no. I also know that I need to understand what this book says so that when I'm hit with something like, this is the all authoritative word of God. I can say, oh, well, did your teenager sass you this week? Well, did you kill him? <laughs> your book says you're supposed to kill him. That's the all authoritative word of God. I thought I saw your daughter working at Walmart on Sunday uh, when you guys were in church. Well, that's when she was scheduled to work. Did you kill her when she got home? Because you're supposed to do that too. If this is the all authoritative word of God. Now, I would never just hit somebody over the head with that no, stuff. No, because that's just... Ah. But these things make a point. Right. And you can use them in the context of making a point without directly attacking the individual. Right. Attack the concept. It's the concept that's an error. Yeah. And that's a good way of looking at that. Once again, we're going a little long and a little long is fine. But I really want to tie this all together and just put a brief cap on all of this uh, so that we can go forth from this particular episode excited about the opportunity that exists for us to become smarter and understand where these people are coming from a little bit better and have a snowball's chance in hell of helping some people get their lives back. That's why I do this show. And if you are on the side of atheism and you're listening to this show, I would imagine that's at least part of your motivation at this point. So just a few points to round things out here. The purpose of developing counter-apologetics is not to wage war on people's beliefs. We do it so we can understand where they're coming from, the things that they've learned about what they are expected to believe, anticipate objections, and know how to deal with them. At the end of the day, our job is not to convince anyone of anything. It's simply to present sound information and counter-argument that inserts information where questions and uncertainties exist. It's the god of the gaps with an actual legitimate and productive application. Now, for those who don't know, the god of the gaps theory argues that those gaps in our understanding of things like the world, the universe, and who we are are filled by inserting the influence of God into the equation. It's kind of the fraud DNA in the dinosaurs in Jurassic <laughs> Park. Okay. Since this is how evangelicals think, we can use this concept to our advantage. Have conversations, not arguments. Be sure-footed, not loud. 
fill those gaps in a way that doesn't cause discomfort or aversion. Be prepared to be rejected. Be prepared to be laughed at. Be prepared to be yelled at, sworn at, and called names. Yes, from evangelicals. Yes, from evangelicals. Be prepared for condescension and dismissal. Well, I'm never going to see your point of view, but I'll pray for you. I hope you see the truth eventually, because God really wants to show you how wrong you are here. You know what? Take all of that in stride. Don't keep pushing back. Let the discussion end and let it end amicably. You had your say. They had theirs. Say thank you and walk away. Thank them for hearing you. Thank them for being concerned about you. These things have a disarming power that I don't think some people realize when they're in the mode of wanting to win an argument. It's not about winning. It's about communication. If we really care about helping people get their lives back from a religion that's designed to shackle it, fill it to the point where there's no room for anything else, and ultimately consume it, we can't approach debate in a way that turns their brains into rocky ground. We can work around the thorns. We can till the soil with sincerity, empathy, and maturity. We can motivate people to see our point of view if we only bother to keep in mind that these are people like us who, in many instances, share a lot of the same thoughts and experiences that we once did. If you were looking in a mirror, trying to convince your theist self to abandon evangelical faith, how would you respond to anger, insults, and aggression? These tactics get us nowhere. Understanding what evangelicals believe, why they believe it, where the flaws are in their beliefs, and why we no longer believe for ourselves is vital in this fight to steer people away from the life-stealing harm that evangelical faith deals people. Work to develop a comprehensive counter-apologetic and approach debate and discussion from the foundations that they claim their faith is built upon. Love, compassion, kindness, and empathy. That's how we get through to them. That's how those gaps get filled. And that's how we help people get and stay unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.